global economy. The volatility and the upswings and the moods. Sort of a deflationary phenomenon again. Money for nothing. Good morning and welcome back to Wednesday's Money for Nothing with me, Renita Malhotra Hora. Twitter shares a drop as it falls short in its effort to attract more users. The S&P 500 rises and the dollar drops before the Fed's decision. And China stocks fell the most in a week amid uh, disappointing earnings and a warning from the CSRC about the risk of investment losses. Well, if you're worried about China's worst earnings season since the global financial crisis, then you're looking at this stock market rally all wrong, or at least that's what the individual investors are saying. But what do they actually mean? We'll ask our markets guest this morning, Paul Schulte of Schulte Research. We'll also talk about oil and today's Fed meeting. Our guests today include Jeffrey Craig of Platts and Luca Silipo of Netixis APAC. Stuart Allcroft of City Trust is back in the chair as guest host. Good morning, Stuart. Uh, good morning, Renita. Stuart, were you disappointed or surprised by Twitter's uh, earnings? Um, to be honest, uh, nonplussed. nonplussed. <laughs> I don't use Twitter, that's why, and so I really don't follow it at all. <laughs> and you might be one of very, very few on the planet, actually, Stuart, that Quite, quite possibly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, well, we'll discuss a little bit more of that, but uh, U.S. stocks uh, overall closed mixed as investors eyed tech earnings and awaited the Federal Reserve statement uh, due out later today. The Dow Jones Industrial Average closed up 72 points, so four-tenth of a percent to 18,110. The S&P 500 closed up three-tenth of a percent to 2,114. And the NASDAQ closed down five points or one-tenth of a percent to 5,055. Blue Mountain Capital Management's Jess Stanley talked to Bloomberg's Eric Schatzker at the Millikan Institute Global Conference, which was held in Beverly Hills. And he says that there's been a virtual explosion in debt markets. Perhaps the biggest response has been a virtual explosion in the U.S. debt capital markets. So the U.S., uh, the amount of corporate debt issued directly to mutual funds and pension funds and whatnot have doubled in size since 2008. Because so banks are no longer holding that inventory. In part because banks are no longer holding uh, those loans and credit has moved to the capital markets, but also the capital markets themselves have evolved. Um, you know, there's more money with mutual funds. Uh, most of the there's increase... there's demand for yield. There's demand for yield because we have zero short-term interest rates, but um, uh, if you look at that doubling in the size of the mutual fund, of, of the corporate debt market, about 77, 80% of that is funded by, by mutual funds. So retail investors and institutional investors looking for that yield have put money into mutual funds, and mutual funds have put that money to work supporting the corporate debt market in the United States and abroad. An early leak of Twitter's company numbers has sent its shares downwards. Twitter posted first quarter revenue that fell short of estimates and cut its sales forecast as the company struggles to attract more users and advertisers. Sales will be $470 million, uh, uh, revised from $470 million to $485 million in the second quarter. This is what Twitter said in a statement, missing analysts' average projection for five. 
million. And Twitter also cut full-year revenue guidance to $2.17 billion um, from the previous range of $2.3 billion to $2.35 billion. Estimai CEO Lee Drogan says that this was a huge mess. On the buy side, our consensus at Estimize, which is comprised of those hedge fund and independent analysts, instead of the sell side, they can't really massage our numbers at all. Uh, we were about $10 million above where the sell side was. That was the expectation. That's why Twitter's stock has gone up so much. And that multiple really hadn't moved. The estimates just moved. This is a huge miss because, uh, you know, they really did miss it big. The stock fell 18% fueled by this early release of results. Raymond James's Aaron Kessler says that it really is a case of under-promising and over-delivering. Last few quarters, they have kind of under-promised, over-delivered, and that's what you saw in Q4. That's why the stock was up so much last quarter. But I think they got a little ahead of themselves. I think they had a good Q4, but that's in the seasonally strong quarter. Now you're coming into a seasonally weak quarter in Q1. You don't have the Olympics from last year. Last year in Q2, you had the World Cup. So you had a couple of one-time events that were big positives last year. Don't know that this year. Plus the direct response advertising, as they talked about, um, hasn't been as strong as they expected uh, initially. So I think that was the real issue on the quarter that we're going to hear more about on the call. Closer to home, the China Securities Regulatory Commission has said that new stock investors and especially small traders are overlooking the risk of losses and should be more rational. The Shanghai Composites led 1.1% to 4,476, with a turnover on Shanghai and Shenzhen stock exchanges jumping to the second highest levels and volatility surging to five-year highs. The CSRC's warning is the second in three days as equities, uh, an equities boom lures a record number of novice investors. The Hang Seng uh, China Enterprises Index dropped 0.2% and the Hang Seng itself was little changed. All right, let's bring in our first guest of the morning, uh, Paul Schulte, who is the founder and editor of Schulte Research. Good morning, Paul. Good morning. <clears throat> so, Paul, what do you make of the CSRC's risk warning? Well, I think, we, first of all, we have been climbing a wall of worry for many, many months. Uh, second of all, I think there is a great deal of sloppy uh, bearishness out there, stale bearishness that doesn't understand what's happening with the China market in terms of policy. And we can discuss that in a minute. And thirdly, you know, the Shanghai market has been dead for many, many, many years. In, and so um, we're, we're just playing catch up here. Fourthly, uh, the Chinese government is terming out the capital structure of the uh, banking system in China uh, with lower interest rates, and this is nothing but healthy. So um, Mm. there's a lot of profound misunderstanding, negativity, and I dare say from the East Coast to the United States, racism in terms of understanding what's happening with China right now. Yeah, okay, so that's that's a lot of points there, a lot to to talk about. Now, Usually when the regulator provides a warning, you do expect to see a little bit of a market correction, and, and we have, but just slightly. Do you think that these friendly reminders are being put in place to prevent a sharper correction that might come about uh, due to some of these factors that you've mentioned? Yeah, we probably need some consolidation right now because the stock, you know, just some of these stocks are up 50, 75, 100% in uh, 12 months. And so I think we're, we're, we're bound for some sort of consolidation. Like with last year, if the CSRC wants to cause a correction in the market, they can just alter the margin requirements in you know at nine o'clock in the morning, and uh, you'll get an automatic correction. So as and when they want to make this market correct, they will. Now, 
China's earnings, not so great. Uh, but uh, as we said earlier, individual investors are saying that, uh, you know, if, you, if you're going to be worried about China's worst earnings season since the global financial crisis, then you're looking at this rally all wrong. What do they mean by that? Well, I think that what we're looking at is just take your basic policy measures. Uh, on the fiscal side, we're seeing a, a profound change in fiscal structure of China in terms of municipal bond issuance, federal bond issuance, terming out the capital structure, monetary policy, we're seeing great deal of easing, tax policy, we're seeing tax relief uh, coming in very smart areas, technology policy. I think China is ahead of the U.S. in terms of many of these technologies that people don't understand. And so on, and, and I think in terms of the anti-corruption drive, China is doing more to clean up the system than just about any other country in the world right now. So what we're seeing, in fact, is all very positive, in fact, for the stock market. Yeah. So when you get a warning from the CSRC saying, be careful, um, it's only being sort of uh, dampening down what would otherwise be a, a, a continuous bull market. I totally agree. Yeah. And, and from that, what, are you now saying that we're looking, we should be looking at medium cap stocks as well rather than just the large cap stocks? Well, actually, a lot of the medium, uh, the mid caps have done extremely well uh, also. Um, I, I think we're just going to get some consolidation here. I have loved the securities companies because I think this, the, the, the center of China's move in terms of SOE reform, um, the, the fiscal consolidation and the securitization uh, and the changes in the capital structure of China favor the securities companies they've more than any other They've seen a big turnover, haven't they? So yeah. they've got to be picking up a lot of revenue that way. Yeah, indeed, indeed. And so if the securities company is doing well, what else are you seeing in the market that's going well? Well, for instance, um, the move in P2P lending, for instance, uh, with Ping On uh, mm. as another example – uh, we want to look at these new financial uh, technology companies. And so Lufax, which is the second largest P2P lender, is a big boon for uh, Ping On uh, and its move into P2P uh, Do you lending. think that could weaken the bank's position? Well, I think that in, in – in, I think the writing's on the wall. I think the writing's on the wall for the banks that, that people would rather own the bonds than the common equity. They'd mm. rather own their preferred than the common equity. They'd rather own you know some of the – like Tencent and Alibaba instead of the common equity. So I think the common equity of the banks is sort of turning into a second-class citizen, which is probably a good thing. Now, Paul, um, you know, the criticism out there or, you know, the word is perhaps, you know, that China is really running, uh, you know, Chinese investors, I should say, are betting on policies rather than fundamentals. Is this a bad thing? Markets are made from policies. There is nothing more fundamental than policies. So that is an absolute false distinction. Policies drive markets. They always have and they always will. So why is it then that, as you suggest, um, investors all across the globe and to New York are sort of looking at China with an ism, racism or, or, or whatever? I know, I know. I just got back from a long trip and a lot of investors have asked me that exact question. Um, I insecurity? Think that, um, yeah, I think that I think that's it. China is making these advances in front of our eyes that are that are astounding and astonishing, and, and it's 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 um, it, it's been outflanking the U.S. in terms of policy and politics in Asia, and this is deeply frustrating to the U.S. right now. So I think that I think you're exactly right. I think they're the U.S. is feeling outflanked and 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 sort of outmaneuvered. And that leads to all kinds of insecurity and fear. So where does this go then? I mean, because, you know, on the other side of the coin, you've got this talk about the slowdown in China. But, you know, based upon what you're saying, perhaps this is not something to worry about. 
No, if you look at the the employment structure of China, there's a profound change taking place in favor of services over, you know, manufacturing. I always ask people, how many tons of steel does Alibaba import, you know, every year? Answer, you know, zero, right? We're moving away from a steel economy and we're moving toward an information economy in many, many areas in China. And this is what people are missing in terms of robotics, financial technology, uh, knowledge services, um, uh, entertainment. Um, the stuff that's happening is astounding. But but also the domestic consumption is rising in China as well, isn't it? Yeah. There's a, there, so that's also mm-hmm. boosting boosting trade. <clears throat> Absolutely right. The, the, the trade numbers are moving in the right direction as well. Uh, and I think the other very important issue that people are missing is the outbound investment. China is intentionally, profoundly, aggressively trying to get outbound investment of China companies moving out moving overseas. This is something that is baked in the cake of the five-year plan. So so if people are talking about an, an imminent you know, devaluation of the currency, they're barking up the wrong tree. So, Paul, why specifically the rally in the banking sector? Is this because of speculation of the PBOC's easing program through banks? Yeah, I think that's part of it. Uh, I think also the, uh, the, 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 if you look also at, again, I hate to look at these, the, the five-year plan is something that is very important and we all need to pay attention to this because this is what China does bank its, the, the, the success of the uh, politicians, uh, you know, is, is predicated on this. The foundation of the five-year plan for China is securitization to reduce China's dependence on short-term unsecured bank lending. That is the whole global phenomenon we're seeing right now in China, and it's really important, and this favors the financial sector more than any other sector in China. All right, Paul, thank you so much for joining us this morning. That is Paul Schulte, and he's the founder and editor of Schulte Research. Well, last week, uh, crude crude oil stockpiles rose by 2.9 million barrels to an inventory of 489 barrels. It's the highest level in weekly U.S. Energy Information Administration data uh, that that started in uh, August 1982. Rubini Global Economics' Nuriel Rubini says that the new normal for oil will be something around $70 per barrel. I think that over the next year and a half, gradually all prices are going to go higher. By the end of next year, might be closer, say, brand to $70 a barrel for two reasons. One, demand is going to recover, but more importantly, low oil prices imply that high marginal cost producers from shale to outside of OPEC are going to produce less. And more importantly, everybody around the world is now reducing capital spending in all in sector by 30%. And over the next few years, that reduction in capex spending is going to reduce the increase in supply in the future, and therefore it's going to affect prices in the future. But we're not going to go back to a world of oil prices $100 per barrel. I think the new norm Normally, in oil markets, going to be around 70 for the next few years. But the question is why? Is it because of excess production capacity or because of the behavior of the Saudis? Well, the behavior of the Saudis is important because the Saudis, first of all, they want, didn't want to lose their market share. So they decided it's better to have lower oil prices for a while to get rid of all the high marginal cost producers, maintain their capital spending to force everybody else to do underinvestment into new capacity. So prices are low, but the market share of Saudi Arabia and the other Gulf is going to be larger over time. There are also some geopolitical consideration. With low oil prices, some of the geostrategic enemies of Saudi Arabia, whether it is Iran and Iran supporting Syria, whether it is Russia going to be weaker. The main motivation of the Saudis is economic, but there is also a geopolitical one. 
All right, let's bring in our next guest, Jeffrey Craig, who is the Oil Futures editor of Platts. Uh, good morning, Jeffrey. Hi, good morning. And thanks for joining us on Money for Nothing. So, Jeffrey, what is your take on what Nouriel Roubini is saying? Uh, do you buy his stance that the new normal for oil will be something like $70 a barrel? Well, I think he really you know, raised a very important point, which is about the role of Saudi Arabia, which, you know, despite everything that's going on in the world, including the explosion in U.S. shale production, the Saudis remain, you know, really the most important, um, you know, player in the oil markets. And as he mentioned, you know, the Saudis are very uh, uh, motivated to hold on to market share. And what that has meant is that they have refused to cut production. In fact, they are increased production um, up to 10.3 million barrels a day uh, last month. And what that means is that they're really, you know, keeping a lid on prices. And, you know, if they're successful in their, um, you know, campaign, they will knock out the high-cost producers. And that would as uh, Mr. Rabini mentioned, would really, um, you know, take out the $100 barrel uh, scenario. Uh, Stuart here, Jeffrey. Um, are we seeing any depletion of the reserves in Saudi Arabia as a result of their very high production levels? You know, I mean, that's a good question. I think the, you know, Saudi oil fields, uh, the deep information about them has always been very hard to ascertain. But, you know, right now, they're, as I mentioned, they're up to 10.3 million barrels a day. Um, you know, uh, it's hard to imagine that they are in a situation where they are sort of running out of oil. Um, that's certainly not on the market's mind right now. Yeah, but we don't, anything, have, we don't have information that says how much reserve they have, do we? You know, like I said, I mean, it, it's mm. the exact number, I'm sure... You know, people may point to this number mm-hmm. or that mm-hmm. number, but, uh, you know, for all intents and purposes, it's it's not something that is really being factored into the market mm. right now. And, and obviously you don't subscribe to the theory that uh, the Saudi Arabians are being um, encouraged by the Americans to increase production and keep prices low. You know, I mean, this, <laughs> uh, you know, this is certainly talked about, you know, the Saudis present their argument in purely business terms. You know, they're going about their business, which is producing oil, and, you know, they want to maximize revenue. That is the bottom line. Revenue is price times quantity. And if they feel that in the long term uh, prices are going to be low because of all of the high-cost production in this world, then they have to maximize the quantity part of the equation. So that's what they're doing right now. You know, has it hurt Iran? Absolutely. You know, but in my opinion, it's a little bit too kind of convenient of an argument. I mean, you can make, you know, you can make that connection, sure, but unless you're sitting there in Riyadh listening to, you know, people at the highest level, I think it's difficult to know their intentions. Uh, Jeffrey, what about gasoline stocks? Have we seen them falling? You know, so far, gasoline, t- 
typically what happens is that, at least in the U.S., um, you know, once we hit into the summer months, that's when gasoline production really starts to pick up uh, heading into the summer driving season. So, so far, you know, they haven't, you know, uh, they haven't been rising nearly as much as crude stocks have been rising. But that's the question on a lot of people's minds, minds heading into the summer, is that as refineries in the U.S. increase production of gasoline to meet the, the driving needs, is the demand there? And if the demand is not there, we will see gasoline stocks rise, and that would have a, a profound impact um, on the market. And when do we see that? When do we begin to get an inkling? Right now. Tomorrow we'll get an inkling, in fact, because uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, Energy Information Administration releases its government data. And the last few weeks, you know, we've had um, uh, very high, excuse me, uh, refinery utilization rates. So they're really starting to pick up right now. And, And so in tomorrow's data, for example, if we see a big build, that would really signal that maybe, you know, the demand, as I said, is not quite there yet. All right, Jeffrey, thank you so much. We'll be watching and waiting. That's Jeffrey Craig. He is the Oil Futures Editor of Platts. A quick look at the numbers now. The uh, Australia's ASX index is down four points, so 0.08% to 5,916. And Sol's Kospi is up three-tenths of a percent to 2,155. Japan is closed today for a public holiday, so no number on the Nikkei. But uh, in uh, currencies, one euro is currently worth 1.09 US dollars. The US dollar is worth 118.82 yen and one pound sterling buys you 11 Hong Kong dollars and 88 cents. The Information Expo on Multiple Pathways will be held on May 9th and 10th at the Kowloon Bay International Trade and Exhibition Center. More than 30 exhibition booths will provide information on locally accredited post-secondary programs, the Yi Jin Diploma Program, and vocational education programs as well as Concourse, eApp, iPass, and eNavigator. There will also be talks on multiple pathways and career planning for school leavers. The time is now 8.25 a.m. and mixed U.S. economic data has once again fueled speculation that the Fed won't raise rates at its meeting today. For further discussion, let's bring in Netix's Asia-Pacific's chief economist, Luca Silipo. Luca, thanks for joining us this morning. Good morning. So, Luca, it seems as though all of the world's investors are living from one Fed meeting to the next. What are you expecting today? Well, obviously, yes, yes, there is a large consensus, and I think that we're not original on this. There is a large consensus on the fact that the Fed not only will uh, not raise rates at this meeting, but uh, will probably not say anything about a possible hike uh, in June. Uh, previously, uh, the consensus of, uh, of, uh, of economists, more than, more than the market, I have to say, was for, for, for an increase in, uh, in June. I think this, I mean, the, the, the kind of bad data that you mentioned uh, just now uh, has convinced uh, both the market and, uh, and other economists that uh, the Fed rate hike will be, if any, 
in 2015 in September. There is no press conference in August, so it's difficult to have a, to have a increase in uh, increasing rates then. So probably uh, we will have that in September. This leaves this meeting of uh, April, so today's meeting, um, basically uh, not adding any information whatsoever. I think that the Fed is right in uh, in waiting uh, that more information is provided by new data uh, on the state of its economy. Uh, and you know they are quite they have quite an impasse because the economy is uh, is slowing down and is continuing to slow down after a kind of very very weak first quarter. Uh, and so it's a difficult job to be a central banker. Yeah, Stuart, you had some thoughts. Yes, I. I did because I think that probably the Fed uh, Lucas just said the Fed is probably right to wait and I think it probably is true because over the next few months we've got quite a lot of activity coming out in the European markets, election results Grexit and all sorts of things like that and and probably from the Fed's point of view it might be wise to wait till after some of these things may actually have happened and then they can be in a better position to judge when to change interest rates Yeah, Luca, what about Greece? Is it going to be able to pay its pensioners and employees this week? Well, this week is really not a problem. Uh, the, the, the problem, the, there are two problems. There are two, two dates in the calendar. Uh, one, one is May 12, uh, when Greece has to repay 800 million to the IMF. Uh, and the other one, probably uh, more dangerous date, is uh, the 20th, uh, 20th of July, uh, when the ECB uh, will ask for for its money back on uh, 3.5 billion euro uh, Greek government bonds. So these are quite this is quite hefty uh, amount of money. Of course, the, uh, the the expectations are that on the next uh, Eurogroup meeting on May uh, 11, if I remember well, uh, there is going to be an agreement, and there is going to be an agreement that basically allows the uh, 7.2 billion of funds promised by uh, by, by by European institution and the IMF to uh, to to finance structural reform to be actually uh, given to Greece. All right. So May 11 uh, is the date to 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 watch. If no agreement by then, then July 20 will be very very difficult, and then we will talk again about the Greece a possi- possibility of a Greek default. And the story continues. Luca, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Luca has been a regular guest on Money for Nothing since the very outset of this show in 2011, but sadly for our listeners, he's actually leaving Hong Kong now for good. Luca, can you tell us quickly where you're going? Yeah, sure. I'm going to um, I'm going to work for a French logistic company. I'm going to deal with uh, economic analysis of uh, supply chain. I think you know the supply chain was quite an easy fit for for companies uh, 15, 10 years ago when there were significant change, significant differences in labor cost and uh, and you know transportation technology and communication technology were improving to a point that we had this uh, this kind of unbundling of globalization okay. uh, but today this is all becoming much more competitive and i think analysis is needed in this where i'm going well good luck with that luca and maybe we'll call you in from europe uh, you know keep you up at night <laughs>
Thanks for joining us. That's Lucas Silipo, who is the chief economist still at NetExcess Asia Pacific. A quick look at the numbers before we close. Australia's ASX index is down uh, one-tenth of a percent now to 5,912, and Seoul's Kospi is up two-tenth of a percent to 2,152. Oil, uh, Brent crude oil currently stands at $64.53, and gold is at $1,211.40. Quick parting words for the day, Stuart. A uh, very quiet week, I think, for the rest of this week and early next week, but uh, probably pick up from the second uh, half of the first week of May. Thanks, Stuart. Uh, thanks for joining us this morning. That's Stuart Alcroft, our Wednesday guest host. He's the chairman of City Trust. And I'm Renita Malhotra-Hora, wrapping up for this morning's edition of Money for Nothing. The weather forecast for today, it'll be sunny with a maximum temperature of around 29 degrees Celsius. Currently, the temperature is 25 degrees Celsius and the relative humidity is 86%. Time for the half-hour news summary with Sam Butler. Police have launched a major hunt for a gang that kidnapped a woman from her house in Sai Kung on Saturday night. Last night, a $28 million ransom to secure her release was handed over. Police set up roadblocks across Hong Kong to search for up to six male suspects and a white private car. Indonesia has executed eight drug traffickers. It has